Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right. Today's case continues to highlight the October theme that I had going on at the end of the month, which is domestic abuse and domestic violence. I understand it's no longer October, But guess what? This issue continues outside of the month of October. This week, I am going to tell you about 22-year-old Katie Blavelt. She was a young girl who seemed to have gotten away from her abusive husband, who was an active duty army soldier by the name of John. When just months after she left him, she seemingly vanished. Join me today as we discuss Katie Blavelt and her fugitive husband, John Blavelt. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode include articles, audio, and videos by Crime Watch Daily, In Pursuit of Justice with John Walsh on Investigation Discovery, The Murder Squad Podcast, Fox Carolina, and Greenville Online. I also had the privilege to gather insight into today's story from Katie Blavelt's niece, Cheyenne Paxton, who took time out of her busy day to chat with me. The year was 2015, and Catherine Boyder, who went by Katie, was 21 years old and she had been working at the firehouse shop in Simpsonville, South Carolina for quite some time. Katie joined her niece at firehouse after working at the local Hardee's for some time. Katie was doing great. She was working and she was taking college classes at Greenville Tech. While she hadn't settled on a major yet, her niece Cheyenne believes that Katie would have done something with animals because Katie loved animals. The sub shop was located in a little shopping strip with a Mexican restaurant, a jewelry store, the Simpsonville Army recruiting station, and an AT&T on the corner. At lunchtime, some of the Army recruiters would visit the shop, and one of the recruiters caught Katie's attention, a 28-year-old staff sergeant by the name of John Blavelt. John was a smooth talker, and the two got to chatting, and Katie was really interested in John. But there was just one little snafu. He was married and he had a young daughter as well. That was a big no-no for everyone who knew Katie, but John assured her that he and his wife had a falling out and they were going through a divorce. So even though they were living together, John and his wife, he said the divorce was coming soon. Katie's close friends and family did not like the idea of John because he was still married. Katie came from a military background. Her mom's husband was military. Her grandfather was prior military and a few of her uncles had served as well. And her mom, Patricia Pivers, was not too fond of John. But John kept his word. And within months of meeting Katie, his divorce was initiated and eventually went final. According to Cheyenne, Katie's niece, it was during this courting period that John had convinced Katie to join the army. But since they were low-key dating, he didn't serve as her recruiter, per se. 
She went to a nearby town's recruiter and enlisted in the army, and she was soon shipped off to boot camp. However, while at boot camp, one of Katie's childhood ailments, a back problem that didn't seem significant and she had actually never gotten checked out, seemed to flare up. Apparently, Katie had a curve in her spine that made exercising difficult or painful. Well, according to Cheyenne, it wasn't long before Katie was discharged from the military and she found herself back in Simpsonville, South Carolina. But the short military stint didn't stop Katie and John from seeing each other. According to Cheyenne, John was able to sneak into the army boot camp area to have time with Katie while she was still in boot camp, which I thought was nuts. Anyway, after Katie got back home, the relationship moved rather quickly and within two months in December of 2015, while randomly text messaging with her mom, Katie blurted out that she and John had eloped earlier that day. Gulp. Her mother thought, first, she looked at the calendar and realized it was Pearl Harbor Day. And she thought, out of all the days to get married, you chose Pearl Harbor Day. But secretly, Patricia just did not like John. There was something about him that just didn't click for her. Call it mother's intuition or something else. She just thought he wasn't the typical military man. Maybe he just seemed all over the place, disheveled, not what she came to know from the military men in her life. The couple was already living in a four bedroom house, which was way too much space for two people, but the couple wouldn't be living alone. According to Cheyenne, she moved in with the couple almost immediately. She was a teenager at the time and she was rebellious and against Katie's advice, the teen wanted to leave home. So Katie happily took her in. Katie was Cheyenne's aunt, but she was only four years older than her, so they were more like sisters. In fact, Cheyenne told me that they would say that they were soulmates because they were so alike. The couple shared one room. Cheyenne stayed in one room. One room was reserved for John's daughter when she visited, and the other room was converted into a game room. But it wouldn't be a quiet house to live in. In fact, it turned into a party house, and interestingly, Right across the street from the Blauvelt house was a trap house. Now, listen, I had no idea what a trap house was until Cheyenne educated me. She told me that a trap house is a house where drugs are sold out of, like the whole purpose of the house is to sell drugs. And well, this actually, the trap house, became a place that John frequented, but not only to get marijuana, also to get acid, to get mushrooms and a slew of other drugs. Now, John was an army recruiter, so he often set up shop at the local high school, which I discovered by stalking his old Instagram account. These high schools were Hillcrest High School, Lawrence District 55 High, and Malden High. Anyway, we all know that youngins nowadays need encouragement to join the military. It's not like before where parents are basically like college or the military. So John felt that he needed an edge to get these kids to sign the dotted line. And he got that by providing alcohol and drugs to minors. And now that he had this large house, that's what he decided to do. He decided to throw these ragers. Katie was not too keen on these parties. She told him to cut it out, but John was a terrible drunk and he'd always tell her to mind her dang business. Now, Cheyenne describes that John and Katie had a particularly volatile relationship. They were always arguing. In fact, Cheyenne found it hard to remember when they actually weren't fighting. And John was a violent drunk, punching car windows and shattering them and always causing a scene outside of the house. 
After one particularly big fight between the couple, Katie had enough and she moved out. Well, in February of 2016, during one of John's drug and alcohol fueled parties, Cheyenne's dad and another teen's dad were upset because they could not control their daughters. One of the teens was 17-year-old Hannah. Well, the dads went down to the police station to report the house party. The police showed up at the Blauvet house during this particular party in February and they start knocking. But John tells everyone to stop talking and lock the doors. John had no intention of letting the cops in. The cops were rightfully pissed because have you ever sat outside of a room or a house where people are trying to be quiet, but there's so many of them inside that they you can just tell that there's people inside. Well, the cops were walking around the house trying to make entry, but couldn't. So they were forced to get a search warrant and it was an eight hour standoff, according to Cheyenne. And well, during that time, two teens finally decided to leave the house and they all walked out one by one. And the police outside ended up putting the, quote, red dots, end quote, on John. And that's when he was finally apprehended. When Katie learned about what happened, Katie went down to the police station with a story of her own. She turned over a revolver that she indicated John used to threaten her. She told them about the marital hell that she had been living in, and she told a shocking story. In late January of 2016, just a few weeks before this house party, John had pointed a gun at Katie. I was able to see some of the report, and it appears that in January of 2016, John wanted to know who Katie had been texting. When she failed to reveal the messages, John and Katie began to argue, and it quickly escalated because John grabbed his revolver and pointed it at Katie, threatening to use it. He told her to unlock the phone, but she refused. Seeing no response from Katie, he then turned the gun on himself and threatened to kill himself. He then grabbed a different gun and fled the house, threatening to kill everyone Katie knew. Katie appears to have been living under John's thumb since that incident, even though she had already moved out and was living with her mom during the February 2016 party. And it wasn't until the cops busted the underage party that Katie finally revealed what happened. So. John was charged with various counts of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, as well as domestic violence. But almost as soon as John went to jail, he made bond. But he was warned not to go near Katie. Interestingly, while John was in jail, Katie took that opportunity to move back into the marital home because she felt, you know, this is my home, too. John, according to Cheyenne, was not too keen on this. And when Katie refused to let him come over to grab his things, he parked nearby and attempted to enter the home through a window. Cheyenne does not recall what ended up happening that time, but she knew this incident to be true because she was in the car with John. Now, I should point out that Cheyenne did share with me that although her and Katie were besties, in fact, soulmates, they also went through a rough patch, particularly when Cheyenne was being rebellious. And Katie tried to warn Cheyenne that life was not all about drinking drugs and friends. But in typical teenage fashion, Cheyenne would hear none of it. Eventually, Katie moved out of the house because she was not able to afford all the bills without John's help. While almost every single newspaper reported that Katie filed for divorce, Cheyenne shared with me that Katie did go see a lawyer briefly, but she never actually filed for divorce. 
after Katie left the house and was no longer living with John, Katie got wind that John was a two-timing SOB, which is interesting because she already knew that. But she found out this time because remember that 17-year-old named Hannah? Well, now that Katie was out of the picture, it seemed that John and Hannah were now a thing. While most news reports about this case make it seem that John and Katie did not have communications for eight months after the February house party ordeal, that is actually far from the truth. According to Cheyenne, John and Katie never really stopped talking. John always managed to get back into Katie's life. And Cheyenne even told me that they would occasionally even hang out. Katie and John, that is, between the time of February to October. By this point, Katie is now working at the local PetSmart and it appears that Katie is getting kind of close to another young man. Katie and her close guy friend end up hanging out with Cheyenne and her boyfriend. And Cheyenne told me about this old abandoned house in town. It was actually right behind the local high school, but it was surrounded by all these trees. Like she actually describes it to me as a house in the forest, but the forest isn't too far away from civilization. Cheyenne's friends found it in the seventh grade and the young kids would go out there to get themselves into trouble, but they thought it was a great hiding place and they loved it, even though it sounds kind of spooky. Well, as this group of kids got older, they actually decided to clean up this abandoned house. And it was like this particular group of kids. It was like their hangout spot. Cheyenne recalls that about a week or two before everything went down, Cheyenne, Katie and their dudes went out there to this abandoned house to smoke. Well, on October 24th at about 3 p.m., Katie was leaving her job at PetSmart and her niece Cheyenne called to see about them grabbing dinner. Katie sounded off like she wasn't all there and told her niece that she was just driving around that she might catch up with her later. Later came and went and Katie's family phoned and phoned and phoned and no answer. Cheyenne even called John and Hannah to see if they had heard from Katie, but no one answered. The very next morning when Katie's phone calls went unanswered and she failed to return to her mom's house, Katie's mom reported her missing. At first, Cheyenne was sure everyone was overreacting, but then the tone in the family changed. Even though Katie hadn't been missing for 24 hours, Katie's family and friends didn't just wait for the cops. They went to search for Katie. Cheyenne met up with John and he told her that she could borrow his car to go search for Katie. But when Cheyenne showed up, the car had a flat tire, so they ended up all staying put and smoking. However, they did have this GPS tracker type thing on Katie's phone and they tracked it to a house close to the abandoned house, but it was some guy's house, I guess, some old gentleman's house. So Cheyenne got out of the car to go ask this guy some questions and she thought it was odd that John also got out of the car. But I guess when they asked the guy if he had seen or heard from Katie, he said he hadn't seen or heard anything. So after that, they all just went back to John's house and smoked and drank some more. Well, that night, Cheyenne got a call from a friend asking her where she was. And she was kind of in a pissy mood, so they didn't talk too long. But the friend seemed concerned, which raised suspicions for Cheyenne. Cheyenne ended up leaving her boyfriend at John's house and asking some of her family to come pick her up. And as soon as her family picked her up, they peppered her with questions about the abandoned house. They told her that the house was surrounded by police and they felt something terrible had happened there. Just then, memories of a drunk John 
flushed into Cheyenne's head. She recalls on multiple, multiple times when John was in a drunk high stupor, he would say how he was going to kill Katie and leave her in the basement of the abandoned house. Now, the kiddos around John were never concerned, but you know, Cheyenne heard it. And the first time she heard it, she told Katie what John said. But Cheyenne recalls that after she told Katie, Katie asked John, like, what the hell are you saying? And it really only just caused a bigger fight. But Cheyenne never thought that John would actually go through with it. Well, the next morning, now over 24 hours since Katie had been seen or heard from, the family received devastating news. Katie had been murdered and found in the basement of the abandoned house. Yup, she had been stabbed. Her body was discovered by one of her friends laying under a pile of lumber that seemed out of place. And when I read these articles, I always wondered, I was like, how does a pile of lumber in an abandoned house seem out of place? And it totally makes sense now because these kids had partied just even a few days or a week before they found her there and the pile of lumber was not there before. An investigation quickly ensued and without any concrete evidence of who killed Katie, John was notified that Katie was murdered since he was her next of kin. But the chilling part for investigators was when they went to his house to tell him that his wife was dead and he was just calm and cool as a cucumber. But it would be another few weeks, weeks before cops moved in on John and received a proper warrant. According to Cheyenne, it took that long because investigators were waiting on DNA evidence. And when police felt that they had enough, the police showed up to John's doorstep on November 18th, 2016. They had an arrest warrant. But John Blavelt was nowhere to be found. He was MIA, or more accurately, AWOL. He fled in his red 2000 Yukon GMC. Katie's car, a black 2011 Ford Fiesta, was found miles away on Whitehorse Road, miles from where her remains were discovered. And even more shocking, John wasn't gone alone. He took his 17-year-old girlfriend, and at this point, police were not sure if Hannah was a victim or a willing participant. What was super odd was that when Hannah's parents checked their mailbox, they found Hannah's cell phone, but it had been wiped clean. Hannah's mom pled with the public to help them bring her daughter home. And seven weeks after Hannah left with John, she called her parents from a Eugene, Oregon phone and told her mom she wanted to come back home. Of course, when she was picked up, she was taken by the police to be interviewed about John and the preceding seven weeks. And all we know is that Hannah told two versions of events. Hannah and John spent the last few weeks living on the land. They were camping in parks and homeless shelters. And at some point they had some car troubles, but they basically made their way all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. The first version that Hannah told was that she went to sleep one night and when she woke up, John was gone. And her second version was that one day John went to the bathroom and he never came back. According to Cheyenne, after Hannah returned back to South Carolina, she showed the police where Katie's personal belongings were, her car keys, her wallet and her cell phone. They were all hidden in the abandoned house and they hadn't been found by the police. Hannah, however, had never been implicated in Katie's murder. 
When Hannah returned back to South Carolina, she tried to be friends with that group of people again, and she even tried to befriend Cheyenne again, but Cheyenne would have none of it. Unfortunately, there has not been any further progress in finding John Blavelt since he went on the run in late 2016. It's been four years since Katie was murdered, and John, the only suspect in her case, is still on the run. Interestingly, there did appear to be some headway in the case in March of 2020 when a man by the name of Charles Sidney Scott Jr. was charged with Katie's murder. Now, it's not clear from the news reports what Charles's connection was to the case, besides that he was an old army buddy of John's. Now, Charles, however, ended up pleading guilty to lesser charges, including obstruction of justice. Due to his guilty plea, the murder charge and the possession of a deadly weapon charge were dropped. News reports indicate that Charles was sentenced to time served and was released from jail a week after he pled guilty. It's unclear to me if Charles was in jail from late 2016 until early 2020, but that may have something to do with why he was sentenced to time served. Fox Carolina reported that Charles was originally arrested in 2016, and they also reported that a spokeswoman for the South Carolina Attorney General's office confirmed that, quote, evidence does not support that Charles was involved in the murder, which is why the murder and weapons charges were dropped, end quote. Cheyenne shared with me that her family was interviewed on three separate occasions leading up to Charles's case, and while they are bummed nothing came of the charges against Charles, she knows who really killed Katie. Apparently, before Katie died, John's mother contacted Katie to tell her to be careful around John because he was crazy and capable of a lot of things. And I know that may sound shocking to many. Why would John's mom say that about her own son? But according to Cheyenne, John loathed his mom. Well, if John's mom actually made that statement, she clearly wasn't wrong and she knew her son better than anyone else. Now, four years later, Katie's family and friends and law enforcement still need your help in finding John Blavelt and bringing him to justice for taking Katie at just 22 years old. Clearly, John is capable of hiding in plain sight, and he will never be brought to justice without your help. John was born on September 8th, 1988. He's currently 32 years old. He's between 5 feet 6 inches tall and 5 feet 8 inches tall. When he went into hiding, he weighed about 180 pounds. He has a few tattoos, including the name Madison on his left wrist, a pirate, a rose, and a sunset on his right arm, a yin-yang symbol on his left forearm, and a parrot on the right side of his chest. Now, it's possible he may have gotten more tattoos since going on the run, and it's even possible he may have gotten some removed. When he disappeared four years ago, he was driving a red 2000 GMC Yukon with South Carolina license plate number JKY826. It is believed that when he went on the run, he spray painted the car a different color, maybe gray or black or something like that. Cheyenne told me that this particular vehicle was found sometime after Katie was murdered. It was found completely abandoned in the deep woods somewhere on the West Coast. John has been known to use aliases such as Blue Blavelt, John Bluefield, Vincent Mendoza, and Vincent Sacchetti. 
The search for John involves various agencies, including the Simpsonville Police Department and the U.S. Marshals. I'm not 100% sure, but I bet Army CID has an open case as well. All right. Anyone with information on this case or more specifically, anyone with information on John's whereabouts, please, please contact the Simpsonville PD at 864-967-9535. Or you can even submit an anonymous tip online at p3tips.com. John Blavelt is considered armed and extremely dangerous. So please do not try to be a hero if you see him in the street. Please contact law enforcement ASAP and try to remember as many specifics as possible. This is one of those episodes that I need you to share on all of your social media accounts. I need you to share with your friends, with your family. John may actually be under our very noses, especially now during COVID when we are all wearing masks. Remember, he has a connection to the army as an army recruiter. He's very likable and very manipulative, okay? Now, before I leave you today, I wanted to leave you with a message from Cheyenne. Pay attention and find him and like share the story, even though it just seems like, why am I sharing this? You know, when you share it and it gets out there, like you got to think like, what if that was your, your sister or your niece or your best friend? you know, just met this guy and she's not really telling anybody about them. That could be John, you know, and he, and he knows how to manipulate. He does. And he's very good at it. He's very, he knows how to weasel his way into any situation. And so you got to think about it. Like, you know, you don't want this guy out there. You don't want him coming into contact with anybody you love. Like, and the more that it gets, like the more that his face gets out there, the more that like he gets put on TV shows like the John Wall show and the more he gets on podcasts and things like this, the more people look for him and the bigger the possibility that they can catch him and not only get justice for Katie, but also, you know, save other women and anybody who he could be putting in danger right now because he's not alone wherever he is. I want to thank Cheyenne for chatting with me. She's a busy mother of two, and I just want to say thank you so much. We actually ended up speaking the day after the four-year anniversary of Katie's murder, and Cheyenne had a really, really rough time just remembering her aunt. And the reason why she wanted to chat with me is because Katie's family wants to continue to share Katie's story. They're afraid that as time goes by, people will just forget about Katie and justice will go unserved. But you know what? We here at the True Crime Army, we are not going to let that happen. Right, True Crime Army? All right. So I'm going to be posting my interview with Cheyenne in the Military Murder Fan Club. So if you're interested in hearing all of the details, make sure that you check out the fan club at patreon.com slash military murder. And just remember, for as little as $5 a month, you can support this independent podcast. Now, make sure that you're following me on social media so that you can see these pictures of John that I'm going to be posting. You can find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on Facebook at Military True Crime. And like I said, share, 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 share his picture. I need to take a minute to acknowledge all of my new fan club members. First, thank you to my newest dotted line supporter, Jare. I think that's right. Jare. Jarori. 
P. <laughs> now, this show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and higher fan club members. Now, shout out to this week's newest assistant producers, Katie K and Emily W. And as always, the music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.